Hello again, lovely listeners, and welcome to Shock Therapies Talking Out Your Arts. My name is Sam Foster, and this is my co-host. I would be Hayden Jones. That would be you. Yep, by deduction. By deduction. Um, we uh, we hope you enjoyed the last episode. Um, this week we're going back uh, to talk to another artist, an arty type person. Mm-hmm. But again, not just your run-of-the-mill kind of artist. Uh, you know, she... Scientist. Yeah, scientist slash artist, which is very fascinating. Innovative thinker. Yeah. Somebody who's reframing the, uh, the function of light and illumination in our lives. Yes. And changing how people think about it. So this is uh, Laura Jade, who we chatted with. Um, we've known her for a while, a little while now. Um, she actually was a did our lighting design for one of our shows, mm-hmm. Undertow. Um, did an amazing job, and it was really fascinating to watch her work um, and and watch her process uh, because she doesn't necessarily come from a theatre lighting background. No. Um Laura is a really a, the way she thinks really a fusion of a lot a lot of different things you know um, and she'll talk in obviously in depth about this but from her science background to her background as a visual artist as a sort of a traditional painter mm. um, and uh, almost a, a contemporary artist is which is a very general term but um, you know some of the work she's created are, are like gallery space mm. type works installations. Mm. Um, even film project pieces. So and she tends um, to work from a perspective of, of mood and emotion and, mm. and creating a feeling and a tone. So mm. whether that's in a, in a space like mm. a, an installation or whether that's in a show, she approaches it from that angle of like, well, what's the feeling? What's the mm. tone? What's the mood that I'm trying to create using light as the medium by which she does that? Yeah. Light is her, is her paint, mm. you know, it's a, so yeah. Fascinating human. Um, uh, really intelligent and uh, to, yeah, some chat. And we recorded this while she was in town uh, back at the start of the year mm. um, while we were doing Undertow at the Brisbane Powerhouse and um, we caught up with her in her apartment and had a, had a wonderful chat. So we hope that you find it interesting as well. Um, remember to subscribe yes. and review and rate would be great. And well, tell your friends, share it with your friend. Go, hey friend, I found this podcast. I think you might enjoy it and find it interesting. Yeah, pass it on, share the love. Let's get everyone talking out their arts together. And um, and you can leave multiple reviews if you want. You just change your name. Yeah. Not that we've done that or anything. All the reviews that are up there are 100% legit. Yeah, there's no fake aliases up there. There's no fake nicknames. No. So, um, you know, look... Look, we don't make the rules. Um, but anyway, without further ado, uh, enjoy the episode with Laura Jade. So welcome, Laura, uh, to Talking Out Your Arts. Thanks for joining us. Um, you're actually up here lighting, doing the lighting design for our show Undertow at the Brisbane Powerhouse at the moment. You're based in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, maybe a good place to start is you're not, uh, I guess you don't even define yourself as a lighting designer. Um, you define yourself as a lighting artist. So maybe you could start out by telling us a little bit about like what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So... I'm primarily an artist and light is my medium. So I use light as a form of painting, um, which can take many forms. So it can be in a sculpture, it can be for uh, an installation or sort of an experiential event-based installation, or it can go into theatre design as well, or lighting for dance. So my practice is um, actually, I'm interested in exploring uh, scientific themes. Uh, in a lot of my work. So I'm interested in the perception of light and colour and how that affects our biological states. And and you've, uh, I understand, you've you've um, studied biology, actually, 
Yeah. So what so what sort of came first for you? What was your first love? Is it biology or lighting? And how did one sort of lead to the other if that's what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, my story is a little bit windy in the sense that I started out first as an artist. So straight out of high school, I went and did a fine art degree in painting. And it was while I was studying painting that my love of light started to emerge because when you're painting with oil paints, you're capturing light on um, your subject. So I started doing portraits and illuminating my friends and painting their faces and just playing around with light with paint. Was and, that also yeah. uh, was colour part of that as well? What drew you? Is it Absolutely. the fact that you're using colour yeah. which drew you to kind of lighting as well? Not yeah. just the kind of light sources that you use in a painting but... That idea it's, of how colour affects an image and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Colour's a huge part of it. I mean, that's how in a painting it's an illusion. So it's a 2D surface that you're trying to make into a three-dimensional space if you're doing a realistic painting. Um, and so colour is how you get your light effect. So if you want like a high chiaroscuro or high contrast, you know, it's all about how colour is relative to other colours. So it's very similar. Painting is very similar to doing lighting design for theatre. Um but I found the 2D medium or the 2D palette um, a bit limiting. And at the same time, I was also quite young at that point. So I was 21 and I spent a year just in a studio on my own trying to be an artist. And it was kind of lonely at that time. And I, I don't think I was actually ready to... I didn't have enough angst that I wanted to express to be like an artist that was focusing on, you know, my inner emotions. I've always been more interested in the outside world and in nature. I think you have to be a little bit sick to be a, a yeah. painter, especially. I mean, I've just dabbled as a hobby in painting and, and the amount of time you just spend on so, your own. Sorry to all the painters out there. Sorry, painters. Yeah. I, I think people romanticise it like it's uh, everyone's doing be. these wild Jackson Pollock kind of visceral yeah. things and actually it's just a lot of time on your own and it's quite hard on your body physically isn't it yeah you have to be kind of a tortured artist I think to make that um enjoyable for yourself like that alone time you know in a in, in a way there's definitely a certain type of personality that that suits but I found it a bit isolating and I prefer responding to something that's external from my emotional emotional world do, do you also find that mm. you're by nature, maybe a, a slightly more collaborative person. Exactly. Uh, I mean, knowing a little bit about yeah. what you do and the projects that you work on, you yeah. tend to collaborate with a lot of other artists and yeah. artists from different art forms and disciplines. Exactly. And, and yeah. I can imagine, you know, that idea of being a painter alone in the room it's kind of goes against your own personality as, yeah. as being someone who's quite social was- and... I was awakening who I yeah really was at that time because yeah like I said I was quite young and so what really um, gave rise to me changing direction at that point was I I went and moved to London and I spent a lot of time in London just hitting all of the art galleries that I was learning about in my art degree just standing in front of all the master paintings and making friends with Rembrandt and stuff and as I was doing that I was also going to the science museums and in Europe you know especially in London they have amazing science museums that are just world class and so I was looking at all of these old specimens in jars and creepy things you know um, in formaldehyde and you know taxidermy and just like all of that really cool creepy natural history stuff and I started to fall in love with science and realized that maybe my lack of direction as an artist, maybe I could actually make a better contribution to the world if I was a scientist, because then at least I'm studying something specific and I'm exploring new knowledge that might be beneficial, whereas art felt a bit wishy-washy to me at that time with how useful it is to society. So what did you go and study that you then went and studied so, uh, biology? Was yeah, it? exactly. So when I came back from Europe, I enrolled in a biology. It was a double degree biology and arts, and so I actually... Um, explored science communication and that's where my sort of love of museums came in and so I was doing uh, I was sort of like extracting DNA from strawberries and looking at cells and exploring like all of the microorganisms and and um, getting really into like cell science and biology but I realized what I was doing was seeing it through an art artistic lens and I would spend time with the microscope just taking pretty pictures of like what I was finding rather than actually taking data and being really objective. So is this like mathematical patterns, like, you know, Mandelbrot set style uh, <laughs> stuff that you were looking at it uh, in terms of a, 
um, I was just a, seeing the beauty a form in of it. Beauty, yeah, of, of yeah. visual beauty in there. Yeah, it was visual beauty, but it was also the beauty of life. It's like looking at life on a on a single celled organism, and what is their world like? What are they experiencing in the microscope? And aren't they amazing? So I was sort of, I guess, anthropomorphizing them a little bit, and connecting with them. Um, more than my peers were they they would just throw them in the bin after and I was like no Uh, you know so I started to um, realize that my love of science was probably not to be a researcher and spend the next 10 years studying ants or something Mm -hmm. um, but to communicate science in an interesting way using my artistic brain and so is that at, at that point is that where you felt that there was a potential fusion with your artistic practice and at that point, you hadn't entered into lighting as an, you were still no. in the painting. You're, you kind of yeah. identified as... I didn't had- even think of light um, for another couple of years. So what I did then was I went and did a master's in museum studies because I thought I'm going to be a museum curator and I'm going to tell science stories with an artistic lens and the museum is where I belong and that's my people. But when I enrolled in this museum studies course, it was really dusty and old in the sense that I wasn't learning anything that I didn't already know because I'd been to so many museums that were outside of Australia. Sorry, Australia, but because a lot of our museums are run off volunteers, there's just not the funding to kind of do the really amazing big exhibitions like blockbuster exhibitions that happen elsewhere. And so I thought I need to bring what I learned from Europe to Australia. And it was at that point I went to a conference um, that was exploring robotics and AI and um, interaction design and and lighting um, at UTS, so um, University of Technology. And at that conference, I volunteered, so I just went to all the different talks. I realized that these were my people. I was like, this is finally feeling like what I want to be learning. And I saw a talk by Mike Day, who's um, an architect, and he's the head of lighting design at UTS. And he was doing these amazing kaleidoscope installations in underground bunkers and talking about light as like a medium. Um, And I ran after him after the talk and basically said like, hi, I'm Laura, how can I be you? And and he basically immediately said, well, you can join my master's course. And I, the next day, was enrolled in a master's of lighting design. And I left my museum studies degree behind and I jumped universities. I mean, this is the privilege of being in Australia where you can, education is kind of available and you can keep jumping from university to university. Anyway, I don't look at my hex debt, um, but hmm. I started my lighting design degree and that was where I started to learn um, basically everything I loved about painting. I started actually doing that, but in 3D space. Hmm. It's interesting because we often talk about, like as theatre makers, we talk about, when we make a show that it's a visual medium and it's a, that the palette is our stage mm. and, and that, you know, we, we create these kind of images and shapes on stage and, and we really kind of compose the, the action on stage like you would compose a picture. Uh, um, and we talk about it sometimes in a film context, like you kind of think about the frame of a film lens or, but, but often we think about it in terms of a painting and, mm. you know, like if you're looking at the fresco, what's going on in that, what's in the foreground, what's in the background, where's the focus, you know, and, and I think that, that kind of makes sense to me in terms yeah. of shapes and images and how you create a moving picture on stage exactly. and how that image Because obviously paintings are static, life, you know? yeah, yeah, but the artist who's doing a painting is still guiding the eye through the painting of like where the focal point is and where they want to lead you to. And they're also creating moments, like they're trying to create these like frozen freeze frames of moments of action where you kind of see a character jumping in the air mm. or like running after something or looking up at this, you know, feeling the light on their face or something like that. So yeah. It's creating moments in the same way that we create moments with what we do. And yeah. So you yeah. were able to translate that logic to lighting when you started learning about lighting. You're like, it was just basically the same thing, just using, instead of using paint and colour, yeah. using light source and light is amazing in its own right like it's a mysterious thing because science scientists don't even really know what a photon is it's just our way of 
describing what a packet of energy is. So a photon as a particle is like quite mysterious because it's both a wave and a particle. It mm. has this duality. Mm. So for me as well, because of my interest in sort of science, which includes sort of cosmology and the universe and being interested in space um, as well, light to me connected me to painting, but it also connected me to the universe or being able to explore light as a fundamental element. Um, and can you tell us about your first attempt at making an artwork with light? <laughs> yeah. And in retrospect, you know, is it something, is it a work that you would be proud of if you created today? Was it yeah. awful? What, what, tell us about that. Actually, it was fun. I So the first brief that I had in my Masters of Lighting Design was to create a luminaire, so create like a table lamp. And I thought it would be fun to make... Uh, instead of making something that just sat on your bedside table, um, to make a wearable luminaire. So something that was just on your body. And so that's when I, I made um, a costume. It's called Lucifer and, and it explores bioluminescence in nature. And that was the first time that I also started programming and um, doing electronics. So it had an Arduino in it that um, basically has an accelerometer and the accelerometer can tell when you're moving in space. And as I was sort of, so the costume was a neck ruffle. Um, I should explain that because when I was painting, I got really obsessed with neck ruffles and um, the sort of Victorian era and the Elizabethan era because neck ruffles kind of represent science to me in a way. It's like when people were in the Renaissance and science was flourishing, that's kind of the dress so the neck ruffle came back as a, um, a costume and the lighting in it moved to my movement. So it became a dance piece as well as a wow. wearable luminaire. And that was a little breakthrough moment for me to kind of realize that I didn't have to make just a table lamp, <laughs> that I could use light on Yeah, that's on a, a pretty radical way of interpreting the, the assignment, brief. the brief yeah. of like make a table lamp, I'm going to make a a movable, changeable, wearable, neck ruffle-inspired <laughs> lamp. Yeah. That's pretty... Uh, yeah, that's I really see why gone. you chose the term <laughs> an, an, uh, an illumination artist because you, you, ride, you ride the line of so many. It's, it's really true cross-art for me. That project, is, I guess it tips into fashion and performance as well. Yeah, and I was learning how to code um, as well. So that my interest in sort of other disciplines kind of was uh, illuminated or ignited then because I got to work with um, kind of all the cool nerdy guys who were in what was called that interactivation laboratory. And that was like they were all wizards to me because they were making chandeliers that would light up with the weather of Texas or, you know, there was like robotic parts all scattered around these big sort of um, tables. So they were making static objects come to life um, using electronics and code. And so, yeah, I dabbled in in their world for a bit as well. And what do you think in that with that type of artwork? What do you think? Um makes an artwork like that great as opposed to one that's sort of like, yeah, so-so. Yeah, it's interesting because actually it's such a new art form, interactive art, art that uses um, sensors or code or um, uh, electronics that I feel like it hasn't fully matured as an art form. So things that are happening in that space, I feel are still being teased out. And a lot of the time, because people who go into electronics aren't necessarily artists, um, it's got that engineer brain thing happening with it. So it's, I feel like over the last 10 years or so, artists are moving more into that space and so it's changing the way. It's probably a good opportunity to tell us about like some of the work you're now doing, like how that yeah. led you to like the Brainlight project that you has been a big successful work that you've done in a whole bunch of places. Because um, like you say, you've, you've approached it less from that engineer uh you know, uh, scientific, well, I guess you've got your science background, but a programming background and, and more from a creative perspective and yeah. a science background. So tell us a little bit about Brainlight because it's yeah. sort of, it's sort yeah, of on topic of what next, you're talking about. It's kind of the next evolution. So from the Neck Ruffle Luminaire, the final work of my master's was to, um, we sort of had a choice, um, was to do full architectural lighting um, or do a research project. And I chose the research project. And for that, you could kind of explore anything. And so 
I remember seeing um, a couple of years beforehand, I saw these uh, commercial EEG headsets. So that's an electroencephalograph that you wear on your head and it reads the electrical activity of your brain. And you can buy these things now. Um, they, gamers use them and they, they use them to kind of control the game with their mind. And so I could see that you could buy these and I thought then I'm going to do something with those one day. I don't know what yet. So it was in the back of my head. And at the same time that this research project was happening, I was thinking about ideas for it. I got commissioned by um, uh, the Brain, the Cure Brain Cancer Foundation to make a light artwork for an event they were doing. And so I came up with a concept of a giant illuminated brain that would be interactive with your own brain. And that was when I was like, I'm going to buy the EEG headset for this. And they weren't expecting me to do something that complicated for their event. I just went a bit crazy with that idea. And anyway, the funding for that event fell through anyway. So the project kind of got canned, but I was so in love with this idea that I decided to do it myself anyway, and it became my research project. So Brainlight ends up using the EEG um, as a sensor. So the audience uses their own brain activity to um, visualize their own thoughts in different colored light. And um, yeah, should I explain a bit more about it? Yeah, tell us about it and, and, and the sort of, I guess, the the responses that people have and how yeah. that then creates a, a dialogue with oneself and where that can kind of go. Totally, yeah. Yeah, so what I was interested in um, firstly was like, can I meet my own mind externally? What would that be like if I could have a conversation with my own brain and actually... It's kind of like the you personifying the strawberries and the single-celled <laughs> organisms. Are you like personifying your own brain yeah. going, what, what kind of yeah, well, person would they be if I met them in a pub? Like, yeah, totally. Because, I mean, we all have these inner, inner monologues and inner dialogues and our connection to self is quite a private thing usually that's not uh, visualised for other people to see. So I was interested in that inner world becoming kind of a spectacle as well. And the fact that you're, you're aware that others are getting this very, it must be a very vulnerable feeling that others can, they can see what you're yeah. feeling right there. You, you can't hide. You don't have a smoke screen of a poker face. You know, totally. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe just explain to people listening, like what, what it looks like and what, happens once you put the headset yeah. on because I, I, we, we've seen it so I, I think exactly. it's good to try and explain the visual because it's quite interesting what what that experience is and how it's interactive for yeah. not just the participant but the people kind of watching yeah absolutely so if you imagine um, a dark room in the center of the room is a giant 1.5 meter square clear perspex brain that is etched with neural networks so it's made out of individual slices based on an mri scan and the brain lights up um, three different colors so um, when someone puts on the headset so i facilitate the brain so i kind of have the power over people in the sense that i put the headset on and i interpret what's happening to them so sort of how i would run it is put the headset on and um, usually green is the first color that comes up and green happens when you're experiencing theta brain waves, which are a slower rest state, um, of, of brain. So, uh, theta is green. And then the next state up is blue, which is alpha. And you get alpha when you're calm, meditative and relaxed. That one's the hardest one to get. And then red is beta brain waves, which is like stressed or excited or just full activity, um, happening so if i give someone a maths problem or something and they have to work really hard they get the brain into a red state so it's kind of about allowing people to see i guess what is their dominant state at that moment and can they ask a question that changes their own brain state um can they start to control their own brain state uh, consciously and um i'm already like slowing my breathing trying to calm <laughs> yeah. like just Let's listening like, trying, i'm getting like, anxious that i can't yeah. slow my breathing <laughs> yeah. and then yeah. sometimes i mean when we have people going, in the room be a blue brain be yeah. a blue brain and that's the funny thing is like everyone thinks the blue brain is like the good one and it means that they're really calm and like they must be lovely people and so 
um, it becomes a competition immediately. Yeah, like a status symbol, like, yes, did you see get, that, everybody? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been meditating like for years. Out, maybe psychopaths are also blue as well. They're just really calm. And it's like, it's like that yeah. fine line between Buddhist monks and psychopaths are both a blue brain. So yeah. What yeah. does that say about humanity? Well, funny story about that is that on the very first time I launched the brain light, I actually got quite um, – active about showing people stimulus videos to see if I could affect their brains. So I had like horror films, really gory films, um, you know, like porn or and full something. clockwork orange, didn't you? Yeah, I was, yeah. it became my psych lab. Excellent. And, you know, I could kind of do what I wanted because no one was checking. Um, and everyone that used it and saw this particular horror film that was very gory went into a red state um, except for one of my friends who just stayed completely green and sort of calm, which is just the resting state. Um, and so, yeah, everyone thought <laughs> maybe we just diagnosed him um, without realising. It's such a genius work and, uh, and you've obviously used it as an artwork and an installation, but do you think there are any other like legitimate applications of that work in other fields, like in, in psychology or therapy? Yeah. or I mean, because that idea that art is... Um, it's that art is like a, a holding a mirror up to people or society. You've done that in a in a in a really uh, original way by literally taking their brain and showing it to. Mm. Um, and I think that's why this work is so great. I think you get work that fuses science and art that is, I guess, more about the wizardry and the trickery and the clever coding. But I think all great art gets at some deeper truth about mm. humans and helps us to better understand ourselves, which this does. But do you, do you think? And have there been conversations about? Yeah. Otherwise, this could be used. It's like maybe people from your science world that have gone, actually, I well, can see an application for that. Yeah, it's the funny thing because I created the brain to be in a gallery space, but then other people see it in different ways depending on what their background is. And so I've been invited to present the brain in really strange contexts that I never would have anticipated. And one of them was when I was in Israel. And so so I have the big brain, but I also made a mini brain. And the mini brain sits in a suitcase and I can travel with it. And so I take it on planes and I sneak into um, conferences and festivals with it. And um, so one of those experiences was in Israel and I was sneaking around with my brain and someone saw it and said, um, hey, I've got someone who would probably be really interested in this. And... Um, they made a few calls and the next day I was on a train to um, the uh, Technion, which is a university a little bit north of Tel Aviv, to meet um, Ari Schroeder, who's a um, neuroscientist. And his his team, he saw the brain and he wanted to show my mini brain to his laboratory and his team to think about um, new directions in their own research. So it became... Uh, a thought piece to kind of inspire them to think outside the box and you know if you think like my inspiration for brain light was crazy like the way he saw it was just on cloud 11 like he was just somewhere else so his research is in uh, pharmaceuticals so creating drugs that are personalized so you'll you'll eat you know a particular drug and inside the drug there'll be sensors that kind of you can release the drug with ultrasound so you you pass a vibration over your body and that actually tells the drug to administer the dose um, when it reaches the right spot in your body so it becomes super targeted medicine (laughs) so he was using and you can, I mean, radio waves and ultrasound give it a slightly different frequency, which can tell the drug to do different things. And so not only was it administering drugs, but it also became a diagnostic tool as well. So when it's in there, it's actually giving the researchers feedback to the can- like what state the cancer's in. Anyway, it's incredible stuff. And it was all a bit over my head. But um, w- how he wanted to use brain light was to think about brain frequencies and brain waves could someone take a drug that's supposed to affect their brain and think a certain thought that would administer the drug so could we actually channel a particular frequency like getting the blue meditation state if you were able to hold that and really hone that that could be a way of actually um, targeting the brain for medicine um, really far off in the future stuff but um, basically, I showed his laboratory brain light to get them thinking. 
about that as a future direction. So that was a strange context where I was in a completely new situation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really, um, that story is kind of almost exactly where we're trying to go in the broader picture with this podcast, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. in the way of like okay. art intersecting. Yeah. Um, like infiltrating. Yeah, it's probably a good segue. Like what, um, what roles do you see, you know, on that level? Like you've, you've kind of intersected this really unique uh, hybrid of, of, of installation and science and art and creativity. Um, but when you, when you look around as a, as a illumination artist and you look in the real world, where do you notice, like, mm. uh, I'm interested, like, as us, as not as illumination artists, you know, I'm obviously sensitive to when I walk into a room, what the lighting state is like, or if you go into a bus or a hospital or a train, like, how does that, I'm interested how that affects you as someone who's studied mm. light and, and also studied science and psychology and understand how those, how light affects emotion and mood and are you like hypersensitive to that? Do you walk into a space and be like, get that fucking light off right now. It's going to drive me insane. Like, or like, or how it's tuned f- to that are you? Yeah. I think it's the first thing I think about if I'm entering um, my home, for instance, like I really hone the lamps in my house are like very particular. And so if I can control the lighting in whatever situation I'm in, I will like, mm. I'll change it usually to be, um, less ugly and I think oh, a lot of the time the world has really bad lighting um, in a lot of the sort of um, places that we navigate during our daily lives um, it, it's not really thought about in an artistic way and lighting is usually something that comes in at the end as a kind of slap on thing with architecture or with you know developments and things like that so yeah maybe we could create world peace just through better lighting <laughs> i think you people know? would be like a lot prob- calmer yeah we're probably all yeah. hypersensitive to it it's just whether you're conscious of that or not mm. really, yeah right? and if you think about like if we're thinking about productivity of like organizations and offices and things like that if you're if you're building a building and you're going the cheapest option and you're putting in fluoro down lights that are you know in a grid that just shoot this sort of like ugly cold um, light on you all day. You're going to get tired. You're going to feel kind of crappy, but you don't really know why. You're going to get migraines or headaches. Mm. You're going to basically want to leave your office. You don't want to be in that space together, um, you know, but you don't really know why. I don't think people pick up on that necessarily. Is it being actually, it really affects your biology. So it could actually like increase capacity because I guess so, we think of it as this luxury thing, you know, that we want to feel nice or yeah you know, but, have, um, have there been any studies into have, have, do you, yeah. are you aware of any scientific studies I was into actually going to be part of a study yeah, right. that was exploring how we could use color lighting um to make make better meetings happen like could, could be conductive to sort of collaborations in organizations so what would be the color of the meeting room um it was so there's a company called R Up, and they do a lot of research into, um, like they're really clever and they do architecture, but they're also doing lighting at the same time. And so they're looking a lot at the psychology of that, um, that area. And yeah, I think um, I don't think there would be one solution for everything in in the sense that everyone's pretty individual um, to how they respond to light. But I reckon there would be a few universal things that we could implement kind of on a mass scale that would really help. And what are those things in your opinion? Like what makes nice light? Yeah. Why is some light nice and pleasing to us? And not, you know, like music, certain things are pleasing. If you think about before we developed the world and became civilized, the light that was in our lives was fire. And so the quality of fire is warm it's flickering it's moving it's casting interesting shadows it's like interesting like you can stare at fire for hours right and it sort of is mesmerizing so i think candlelight and fire so we move from fire to candles you know and then oil lamps and the sort of history of how we've used lighting in our lives has actually been quite uh interesting because we've always lived in low light because oil lamps were really expensive, you know, we had to slaughter whales to get the oil. And so only the wealthy people had uh, lighting in the evenings. 
Um, same with candles. Candles were super expensive, so only wealthy people could really afford to put them on at night. So in the evenings, people would live in really dim light. They'd have one single light and they'd gather around the fire or they'd gather around a single source. And so I think socially that brought people together. It's kind of like the TV kind of replaced the campfire, basically, um, in the sense of how we gather. <laughs> so you think that that concept of gathering around a light source could be a contributing factor into why we became more social as a species in a way? like Potentially, yeah. I mean, that's something that would be super interesting to test. I'm sure someone has studied that. Um, but I, but I think it just means <laughs> that's a spin out. That's the interesting theory. It's a hot take. Yeah. <laughs> I hope someone gives us a call later and yeah. pays for that yeah. research to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so you think that that it, that it's on some very deep psychological level that those those concepts of of warm lighting, uh, there's something in intuitively and inherently that feels good about that that makes us feel safe and secure and yeah i really think because I, I associate like light with safety too you know people uh there's all the, a lot of people are scared of the dark right yeah yeah and and fear of what you can't see and yeah. and so they want to have a light on like they sleep i think that's part of the whole attraction to people having salt lamps in their, in mm. their house i don't i don't personally think they do anything and your ions or whatever maybe I'm wrong but I have they one on they just, they're just a it's, nice it's light a yeah. it's a beautiful light. I have and I feel calmer I, I don't yeah. know that it's because I'm getting showered with with negative ions but it just feels good exactly so yeah like yeah. You, you know I mean with the safety factor so I mean that that sort of brings us into like street lighting and cities and how we light our cities yeah. because obviously there's a huge difference between like living in the country and living in the city in terms of light pollution and one of the interesting things about overlighting a city is that we lose our connection to the stars and that's a connection to the universe <clears throat> that I think we is also an ancient kind of caveman thing um similar to the fire and so I think cities feel dangerous because you don't know who's there Mm. there's more people living together you don't know who's in your community you want to light every back alley so you feel safe whereas when we were living in smaller communities you knew everyone who was kind of around the corner you knew where the bad guy lived and you avoided his house or you know you just kind of were aware of who who they weren't around the campfire you were like yeah who are you yeah exactly (laughs) yeah yeah um I mean, that's an interesting thing too because, you know, I think in terms of how humans develop their socialization and mm. things like that, there's been studies to show that the mass amount of people that works is about 120 and over that amount you start to not know everyone on a deep enough level to trust them and that's yeah. why you get these sort of clans that break off into... Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've read a study that um, that's to do with the our brain has a limit to how many people we can remember yeah and and all that you can form like deeper connections with and once you kind of max out on that that it's it's not possible to have any meaningful or deep connections or even remember people's names and and kind of really form those kind of bonds yeah um that we're sort of not wired to be able to do that so this idea of smaller clusters of communities Mm. um which is why we walk down a busy street and nobody says hello each other to each other which of course makes no sense to small children who just think, well, oh, how are you not all same. being friends? And yeah. hello, and they say hello to that person because they don't understand these social rules we've we've constructed in order to manage mm. things like that in our capacity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was wondering, you were talking about um, uh, does lighting design being a bit of an afterthought, um, but I was wondering if you know of any more examples, like in the urban space, where it's um, at the forefront of thinking either. Um, for a social purpose or like you were mm. talking earlier about um, fast food restaurants? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it can be used for good or evil with intention, you know, so it really depends on uh, what the lighting designer's intention is. Um, and so, for instance, in a in a food court or in a shopping mall, um, the intention is to keep you in that space consuming and so how they use lighting in that space is to cut off your connection to the outside world so you don't know what time of day it is. You don't know if it's raining, you don't know if it's cloudy, you don't know if it's sunsetting or 
anything. So it, Which I'm sure is the same in places like casinos. Yeah. Right, where they have maybe yeah. a lack of windows. Um, and that's the glamour and the glitz and the overwhelming nature of lights and the sound and the sort of like you're just being, your senses are being absolutely maxed out. Or with. airports. Yeah. Airports are the same. You don't know what time of day it is in an airport. You can land in an airport anywhere in the world and go, I don't know if it's day or night because people's yeah. body clocks are so messed up that you, yeah. the lighting always seems the same. Like the airport design looks different, but you're like – the what? lighting always feels, now that I think about it, very similar in every airport. It's yeah. like because they're a kind of liminal space because yeah. you're not here, you're not there, no. you're sort of in transition. And some of the – like Singapore Airport has really nice nooks where they have mm. waterfalls and palm trees and like places you can go lie down. And yeah, it's one of my favourite airports. Yeah, and they also have a butterfly farm there and a sunflower roof. So they're doing the airport right because they're giving you little spaces and experiences that are special. Mm. But Yeah, obviously it's like um – I guess these studies exist, and 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 a lot of a lot is understood about the psychology of lighting, um, and I guess it's a it's it's a form of manipulation to be able to kind of um, curate yeah. these spaces, and and oftentimes there's no thought gone into it. But you know, do any examples come to mind? Like in the capitalist world we live in, where yeah. lighting is you know deliberately manicured to sort of create an experience for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like one one of the things that I'm interested in, I'm not I'm not so much interested in traditional architectural lighting. Like I actually think I really appreciate it, but that's not an area that I focus on because I'm thinking of more crazy ideas, I guess, than lighting things really nicely. But um, if if you think about a kind of movement towards smart cities. Um, there's some experiences that are happening where they're actually cladding the outside of um, towers with um, light that is like data of the health of the city, for instance. So there's been, I can't remember the city uh, or the building, but there's there's one particular tower that's basically showing um, the energy use of that building. So how, how green it is, how kind of carbon neutral it can be. Um, and they do that with uh, a sort of facade of uh, a line that kind of just floats up and down. So there's basically LEDs on the outside of the building uh, giving you an image. So it sort of becomes the building's a bit like a, a TV screen, but it's communicating something that is, I guess, for the public good. And it's sort of about transparency of owning your carbon footprint as a city. So I think there's space in... Is that more about like... A message though like of going look how green we like are they trying is there a like does that tip into a political kind of campaign to a degree like a bit yeah. of a green movement to sort of say this is what we're doing that's good or or, or even at it on a less political level just raising awareness do you think the intention behind that is to raise awareness to the broader public of let's be more conscious of our carbon yeah. footprint and the way to do that is to literally uh illuminate our building in a way that kind of yeah. makes that really apparent in the same way that your brain light you know shows you in a physical sense you, know, you can see the color of your brain if you can see the color of your building that indicates how yeah you know carbon neutral you are do you think it's 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 de- like it's obviously a deliberate choice but what's the kind yeah. of the, rationale I mean, behind it i i don't know exactly what the irrationale behind it in the sense of like how much they're trying to look like they're better than everyone else or you know that they're doing something but I think the the potential that that kind of um, experience has is to look at the surfaces of our cities as a place for intervention and the intervention could be political it could be artistic or it could be uh, actually just helping us navigate the city in a different way so it's basically using real estate that hasn't been used before it's using the sides of buildings to tell a story or to uh, communicate an idea and so I think it's because it's only kind of new I think that there's room for artists to actually inhabit that space in cities and use it for good use it for you know all sorts of different reasons so do you think there's a trend back towards i guess uh, the more we understand about this bringing lighting and using it uh in in our public spaces to bring us kind of back closer towards our 
our humanity and ourselves, it seemed that maybe for a while the progression was we started out with kind of fire and candles and then lamps and then it kind of got into these uh, more and more artificial forms of lighting and LEDs mm. and and that maybe there's been a, there's a, a, some kind of backswing or maybe it's just the application of those lights is kind of coming back the other way or... Yeah, it's sort of twofold. It's interesting because I feel like the, the more we enhance our technological progress, the further we get away from the campfire vibe as well. And so I feel like we're kind of on a trajectory that's if we can find the technology to do something, we will just because we can. Mm. And that's been the kind of, uh, like me, how I was saying before, that it's a young medium I feel like the intention behind it is let's just see what happens if we do this and we're not thinking deeper about it yet. So I think there's room to grow in um, that sort of technological advancement to bring the humanity back into it that could give us the feeling of uh, human connection and um, warmth and and that sort of um, probably will never be like fire unless we sort of project fire on buildings and everyone thinks the city's burning down. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I still think we haven't turned back around yet fully. Right. Yeah. Do you have any, any radical ideas, and, and maybe you've made some works that have done this, but do you have any <laughs> radical ideas about what that might actually look like in 100 years' time? Yeah, I mean, if we still um, uh, have cities. I mean, I think greening the city... Part of the the thing about light is how light interacts with surfaces. And so we feel comfortable in a forest because there are levels of dappled light that are hitting our body. So it's also about how light interacts with materials and um, more nature, greening our cities, having more trees, having more um, vines, you know, green walls on, on buildings actually affects our experience of light in that space because it softens it. It's not so harsh. Um, so I think a movement, my vision of a city would be super greenifying a city, mm. having a forest in the CBD. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting, like as a lighting designer that, you know, cause I think we often think of lighting designers as like using artificial or electrical, you see futuristic, like there's neon light, but you're, you're talking about actually utilizing natural light, yeah. like creating the design of a city that, so you're kind of deliberately, it's almost like how, uh, a painter uses the absence of color to create a, an effect. Way, yeah. yeah you, so you, rather than adding a light source, you're going, actually, let's create a space where the sun, the best yeah. light source we have. Exactly. Nothing's actually, better than the sun. Yeah. So you're, mm-hmm. as a designer, you, you kind of go, you know, natural. I'm just it was hearing you talk. I was kind of like, there's a, there's even a design approach to whether you add lights or just create the opportunity for natural light to spill into a space through a window or, you know. I mean, if you think about your own homes, you want to be north-facing, you want to have sunlight coming through your windows, you you know, do you want to have direct sunlight coming in so you feel the warmth of the sun as well as have the light? So, Yeah, you told us a story about you were on a plane coming up here and you redesigned (laughs) someone's – can you tell us that – yeah, story. That I mean, it's a good example of what you're talking <laughs> it about. It is actually really. a really natural segue into that story because, yeah, on the plane up to Brisbane from Sydney, I sat next to someone um, who was uh, you know, traveling for work. And so we, we got chatting and I mentioned at some point that I'm coming here to light a theater show. And he was like, oh, you're a lighting designer. And he just got onto this track of, I need your brain. And I ended up, we ended up drawing yeah, a Oh, whole. lucky I've got it here in my suitcase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he basically told me he's just bought a house in Sydney and um, he's only been in it for three days, but he's really disappointed that the back room is super dark and he doesn't know how to fix it. So I got my sketch pad out and we ended up drawing a full house plan and he explained how he, you know, where the bedroom was, where the sunlight's coming in from this particular side and that, the, you know, at some point someone built a room in the middle that's blocked all of that natural light to come into um, the room in the rear. 
And so he was like, is there a way that we can bring natural sunlight into that space? What do you think? And so we spent the hour and a half journey <laughs> coming up with different ideas, you know, things like, can we use a mirror on this particular wall? And you'll have to have that door open to bring the natural light bouncing off the mirror into the space. That's a sort of more lo-fi approach. Um, can we put a skylight into that? No, we can't build a skylight in because it's a two-story house. Um you can actually buy skylights now that are fake LED skylights that have the quality of natural light. So you can you can sort of put a, a fake daylight skylight. Um, they're a bit expensive, so that's like not maybe not the best thing. Maybe we need to cut down some of the trees that are on the other side and let light in, you know, through that side. So we were just sort of exploring all the different options of how to. And did you invoice this guy at the make, end? Like use those trees to make a fire. <laughs> I actually gave him my friend's number who actually does this for a living and said, look, it's better that you call a real lighting designer for um, to come and visit your home and really look at it. I just enjoyed the puzzle. Like it's always a puzzle to solve. So um, it was a fun way to spend a plane mm. flight. <laughs> and do you, do you tend to approach most of your projects in that way? Like you go, like if in, in this instance of like designing a theatre show, you go, there's a problem, there's this story, there's this narrative, how do I enhance those moments and like is that yeah. that idea of solving puzzles is and and like more broadly those examples you're talking about in city architecture it, it, it seems like there's maybe an approach and it, it kind of ties back in with what you're saying about science the science is science always starts totally. with a problem that you've got to solve or yeah. um a question that you ask it, it seems that whether you are talking about architectural lighting of a city or designing lighting for a show or someone's house you're like what's the issue what's the problem what are you trying to solve and how can we design yeah, yeah. space or use light to yeah you know. i mean light is if you're a lighting designer or a lighting artist you have to be both technical and artistic at the same time because you have to think about uh on the artistic side you use your intuition to feel the the mood the feeling what do you want? What sort of atmosphere do you want to create? But then, you know, that's all well and good to understand the atmosphere. You also have to know how to achieve it. Mm. And light gets quite technical, especially in architectural lighting. You need to know the lux, the candela, you know, the particular color rendering of that light to bring out the correct colors of a space. You also need to know the focus points, where it's hitting, where your hotspots are. Um, so you can really go deep into the technical side of lighting as well. Um, they're kind of two um, spectrums to explore and so I think for me every situation that you use lights has a different puzzle and a different technical problem to solve and so you have to be quite adaptable to uh, having for me anyway a very broad knowledge of what's possible in order to have the solution that's there so lighting is cool because there's new technologies being created every year so you have to be very um, up to speed on the latest technology that's coming out because mm-hmm. um, we've moved from incandescent and fluoros to LED-based things. So, And who do you find those sort of the main audiences are for the work that you make? Um, because it's, 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 quite a, it's quite a niche, um, you know, set of knowledge that you have and, and do you find that, you know, the nuances of what you do is, is, is lost on a lot of people? Is it, is it mostly lighting people that like your work? visual art people etc yeah i mean i think in terms of the um sculptural work so with brain light people can come at that at any level and take something away from it um they can go as deep as they want into the science and i can tell them as much as they want to know or they can just enjoy it as like oh i got a red brain or Mm. i got a you know pink brain and they can have a bit of a gamified play with it um so i i try and make it as broad uh you know to appeal to as many people as possible i think multiple kind of access points in that sense but then for me to get pleasure out of it i love learning and sort of exploring new areas of knowledge so i like to use my work to network in a way with people from other disciplines so i can have a chat with them about what they do and i mean brain light's great because i basically get to sit with someone and interview them in a really deep way um, with the excuse of the brain being um, why we're doing it. But I can actually just ask them really personal questions like straight up um, to dive in to try and get a reaction from them. So, um, it, yeah, I, I guess I 
my interest in is in collaboration with people from other disciplines and so I use my work to find those new connections or collaboration with the audience in that sense like the participant yeah. it's a very participatory piece that that yeah. work you know because you're 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 getting as much out of the person sitting there as they are themselves so it's this kind exactly. of genuine exchange of the experiences like they're enjoying the experience you're enjoying yeah. trying to provoke them in different ways and yeah it's very collaborative in that sense that you're collaborating with the subject it's themselves in, in in that sense and a lot of artists don't get feedback from the audience because mm. they'll they'll install a show they'll put up a painting on a wall and they never hear what the person thinks of it unless you eavesdrop and like act creepy in the corner of the gallery um it's one of the things i like about acting on stage as opposed to acting on film is you you get you know you might not always get to chat to the audience but you can sense and feel and hear in real time yeah how someone's responding whether they think it's funny whether they think it's sad you can watch their response in the audience in front of you when you do a film you you don't know and it's really weird you know the crew's all there kind of doing their job and no one really gives you any response it's very Mm. very rare that you do a performance on film and you get any kind of immediate feedback from anyone in the room um so you're and then, and then months later, when the film gets released, you get this response and this feedback. It's so fucking weird because it's this delayed feedback yeah. loop, which you go, "Oh, I've, I've forgotten about that." Yeah, you're you know? not in the moment anymore. Yeah, I think that spontaneity of being able to respond to the mood is something I really enjoy mm, as well. Mm. And in the way that's brain lights like a theatrical piece because it's just me and the audience watching the brain and. If I can tell people are not engaged enough with it, I can throw out, you know, a different question or get them thinking about it in a different way or get them testing each other on the brain so they start to play with each other in the space. So, um, yeah, in a way I'm just working with the audience and working with the room. Um, and what are, you, um, what are you working on at the moment except for this fantastic show I've heard about called Undertow and this gentleman on the planes... Um, house aside <laughs> yeah, from those two projects yeah, yeah. what are you kind of working on where are you where, where where's you where are you pushing into um so one of the things i wanted to do uh in um sort of with lockdown and you know the whole covid thing was actually work on a smaller scale and reel things in to a more experimental place where i can um really just play with light and have no expectations on it so i can start to discover new uh, ways of using it um but the opposite happened and i ended up doing a really big project instead um that i didn't get to play with that much and that was a giant kaleidoscope called pocket cosmos and it's a it's sort of an eight meter tall kaleidoscope that you walk inside um and so the a kaleidoscope is like a prism of mirrors um and so it's it's a triangular prism that tapers towards the top so when you're inside you get an infinity room experience but when you look up um you see the sky reflect uh, refracted into all these different patterns and it creates a kind of floating orb and of the different colors of the sky it's kind of hard to explain but it's a giant kaleidoscope it looks amazing i saw photos of it but i i never (laughs) experienced it and it was um i saw you playing around online with like all these kaleidoscope little ones yeah little kaleidoscope (laughs) mini kaleidoscope that was where i got my little mini uh, fix was i actually ran a whole bunch of kaleidoscope making workshops and so i designed three different kaleidoscopes that everyone could make and um because i love teaching actually a big part of my um, practice is um running workshops and you know Mm. teaching and especially kids so i run neuroscience classes i reckon if people follow you on instagram they'll get a sense (laughs) of like what your next project is you're working on because you get like i've noticed you get like in in in, uh you get on a on a theme that you're like exploring an idea and uh, so you start posting all this stuff about like kaleidoscopes i'm like she must be working on some big kaleidoscope idea and then next minute it's like this eight meter kaleidoscope i'm like there it was i knew you must have looked like a real did you do all that research at home because i mean you can't exactly sit on the train like 
looking through colitis. <laughs> People be like, look at that girl. She's been looking in a kaleidoscope for like two hours. Yeah. I mean, I probably looked like a crazy person, yeah. um, you know, and I want to, I made like a pair of kaleidoscope glasses. So you have two kaleidoscopes looking at different directions in, in both oh your eyes. Oh my God, so that sounds was, amazing. Um, so yeah, hopefully I'll make them into a mass produced thing at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you, what do you see um, more broadly? Like, interested in like the when you think about the future i was just thinking as you're talking earlier about like a hundred years from now um you know we see all these sci-fi images of what the future is meant to look like when you watch kind of blade runner and stuff like this and all the lighting is this kind of neon lighting and the cities are all dark and it's kind of very uh sterile often the spaces are very sterile and like what do you do you think that's where it's heading or do you think or do you think this something is like else? Like asking what? me if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's, it's, <laughs> the um, question is, I where feel do you like, want it to head, and where do you think it's heading? Yeah, I mean, because a lot of like, I love Blade Runner because it's so dystopian, and that really is kind of like possibly where we could be headed, you know. And I really think it really captures that mood really beautifully because it's kind of like '80s, and the soundtrack's really amazing. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm. I'm pretty cynical, actually. So, <laughs> um, despite being, um, you know, uh, pretty uh, gregarious and optimistic seeming in my art practice, because I'm, I get excited, you know, by ideas and things like that. If I think about humanity, I get a little bit cynical. Um, so, I, yeah, I struggle with actually envisioning the future because um, I feel like I need to just think about what I can do on a personal level and if I can create a cool artwork or theatre show or experience for people that makes them feel good in that moment, that's probably <laughs> all I can control. And I think that's a great motivation. And, uh, you know, I think I, – I hope – I hope Blade Runner's wrong, um, obviously, <laughs> but like we're, we're we're very humans have very poor self control, and so I think those kind of outcomes depend on whether we can rein ourselves in and create better habits. But in terms of technology, I think the things that have shown themselves to be most successful are the, are the things that are most integrated into our humanity and our daily lives, where. Um, we don't feel like we're consuming them or consuming technology. I think that's why, like, Apple has been so successful. Yeah. There must have been a thousand manufacturers create headphones, but why is the AirPod it? It's because it, it the intuitive thing, and this is not an ad for Apple, but what they do really well <laughs> is they... But they, if they you create, want to sponsor the podcast, we'll <laughs> happily take your money. They um, create things to be intuitive and work with humans rather than impose upon humans. That's, yeah. that's really smart. Yeah, and what do you see um, your like? What motivates you to continue? Why do you keep? You've told us, you know, why you got into it, how you got into it, and that journey. But you know, now what keeps you going? What keeps you wanting to do this? Is it is it that simple idea of creating these beautiful experiences for people, whether that's mm. in a physical space or on watching a show or? Uh, is, is is it that simple for you that you go, that's enough for me to just create an experience for someone that makes fills them with joy or, or makes them intrigued? Like what what is it that keeps you inspired? I think um, beauty is a big part of it. Like I've kind of had an obsession with beauty since I was painting, but in a way I need to put that um, beauty thing aside because um, – that can be quite distracting as well and I think a bit superficial if you're just creating beauty. So the thing that keeps me going and, and inspired is kind of keeping my uh, finger on the pulse of where technology is moving and how that's changing our humanity. So similar to what you were saying about uh, bringing the humanity back into technology, one of the things I was interested in with the EEG is how could we actually use technology to better sense our inner selves and in a way uh, you know we don't need technology for anything like everything we've got that makes us happy is actually I think very simple it's like having a connection to yourself and to your body and so that's where the biology comes in I think biology and nature have kind of designed things really well and we're just trying to catch up on what is already happening in nature we're always trying to imitate nature in different ways um, and we never quite nail it 
um, I think. But, you know, so I guess I'm trying to nail it <laughs> in the sense <laughs> I'm trying to find a way that technology can uh, bring us back to ourselves um, and, and having a connection with ourselves, which I think then, you know, creates an onflow effect of um, making a better world in a way. Well, that's uh, probably a good place to wrap things up. Um, I think, you know, that uh, idea of understanding yourself in order to understand others is is the kind of, in many ways, the pursuit of, of not just many artistic practices but many spiritual practices is, you know, you, you kind of, you're the, your closest point of contact with any other person and um, it's been really nice to connect with you uh not just to over the last hour chatting but and finding out a bit more about your background but working with you as well has been a really a really amazing experience to just watch watch how your brain works and watch how you interpret what we do as as theater makers um it's a really uh it's a, it really is an honor to to work with you and, and to chat with you today so thanks yeah, yeah absolutely and if people want to find out more about what you do and have a look at your stuff where yeah. can they uh where can they learn about that um uh, well like you said my instagram you can see what things are obsessing me at the moment so i'm laura jade artist on instagram and my website is laurajade.com.au and we'll put all the links uh in the show notes and uh we'll put a bit more info about laura um, on the uh, on the attachment with the uh, with the show notes. So, thank you so much, much for joining us and uh, talking out your arts with us. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thank you. That's great. Oh, cool. First one awesome. in the can. Oh, All right, that was great. That was lovely.